L'audit de vos rêves se trouve déjà près de chez vous. Choisissez le modèle qui vous fait rêver et profitez-en immédiatement. Audi s'engage aujourd'hui à vos côtés avec Audi pour vous. Un ensemble d'offres et de services pour vous aider à mieux repartir. En ce moment, jusqu'à 6 mois de loyer vous sont offerts sur une sélection de modèles disponibles en stock. Découvrez l'ensemble de nos engagements Audi pour vous sur Audi.fr. Offre jusqu'à 6 mois de loyer suivant le premier versement offert. Offre LLD à particulier jusqu'au 30 juin 2020 sur 37 mois et 25 000 km par an maximum sur une sélection de véhicules en stock et si acceptation par Volkswagen Bank. Détail sur Audi.fr. Welcome to Test Podagogy. In 2008, John Hattie, Professor of Education and Director of the Melbourne Education Research Institute at the University of Melbourne, released Visible Learning. It is a book that aimed to bring together the evidence of what teachers were doing in the classroom to show how effective a particular strategy or approach might be. It was an instant hit, being labelled the holy grail of teaching by this very magazine. Over my six years on this magazine, I've heard it cited hundreds if not thousands of times, and I know of schools who've based what they do in that school largely on what John Hattie wrote. And yet it is not without its critics. So for this episode, John Hattie joins me to discuss the book, the reaction to it, and to address some of those criticisms that have come up over the intervening 11 years. John, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you for joining me from a very hot Australia, I understand. It is very hot indeed at the moment, John, and it's great to talk to you about subjects I love talking about. So when you released Visible Learning um, 11 years ago now, what was your intention? I mean, the Times Ed, the magazine I work for, called it the Holy Grail of Teaching. Were you <laughs> aiming to create the Holy Grail of Teaching? Uh, John, it was my 10th book. Can you possibly imagine what happened to the other nine? Uh, <laughs> when you write a book, you, particularly as academic, you don't often think about the audience so much because you know a bestseller is one or two hundred copies and so it was a chance for me to try and put everything together and, you know the fact that you know, 10 years later it, it sold over a million copies I, I never dreamed that would happen it was no imagination and when there was a bit of interest thanks to um uh, warwick mansell and your paper who gave it a label which i um, have never agreed with and I got into a lot of troubles because of that <laughs> um, Monty Python didn't even find the Holy Grail. What chance did I have? <laughs> and so the fact that it's, it lasted even a year, let alone 10 years, um, I, I cannot explain it. Uh, I'm delighted that people have found it interest. I'm delighted that others have taken up many ideas and critiqued it and, and used it in various ways. But certainly when you sit down and write a book as an academic, it's a lonely activity. And so when someone comes to the party, it's wonderful. What was your... Um... I knew the secret. <laughs> what was your intention then back then because uh, now in the UK we are a very research informed profession in the sense that uh, research is consulted all the time my understanding I wasn't in education back then uh, back then um, but my understanding at the time was that it was still something of a dark art was that part of what you were aiming to do to shine some light on what might be effective and what wasn't well yeah and it, it, like kind of like you I'm not really in the mainstream of um teaching and teacher education you know my background is, is measurement and psychometrics and as a bit of an outsider in the business it was it fascinated me that everybody had an opinion everybody knew truth everybody had evidence and the thing that was most surprising is that almost every article you ever read showed that whatever they did worked mm. and so it really started from this sort of observation that how come everything works when i was a kid it's not true <laughs> um, we had much variability amongst our teachers and so that's kind of what it started and if I have to do anything now um, 
if, if I look back now, it's changing that notion from what works to what works best. If mm. I can have any influence and credit of doing that, I'd be very happy to get into this relativity notion. And so that's, that was the initial aim, is to, to try and change the debate from let's look at evidence to let's look at comparative evidence of impact. And do you think that, was it harder than you thought when you got into it? I know most people, when they start looking at education, suddenly the, the variables stack up and they're just overwhelmed by the fact that actually measuring anything in education is so difficult. Did you already expect that to be difficult? Did you already, before you started trawling through all the meta-analyses, did you think this is going to be as hard as this is? Well, no, not really, because you know, as a measurement person, I don't see that as, as much of a problem as many do. Like on every day in every classroom, kids are asked to do assignments, they're asked to do work. Um, there's a lot of busy work in classes, a lot of judgments teachers make. And you know, how you then capture that in the um, ways that can be documented and used by others is not as difficult as often as imagined. And that's kind of the other thing, John, that I really want to, wanted to write is to look at this notion of can we understand what teachers mean by impact like it frightens me when we do work on asking teachers what their concept of engagement is what does it mean when kids are engaged they say things like when kids are doing things mm. well there's not a lot of learning and there's not a lot of challenge and a lot of doing and i remember doing an incredible amount of doing stuff just for the sake of doing it but when you then go to that next step and say well can you actually monitor kids progress can we look at the ways in which they add value to their own learning I, I don't think it's that difficult so the switch i wanted to make was from talking about teaching to talking about the impact of teaching mm. and that's just not as difficult as people imagine it to be an impact doesn't just mean test scores it means mm. engagement it means turning kids on to learning so i don't think it's as difficult as it's played out to me and when you started, I mean, in, in the really recently released gold papers that you've um, that you've you've put out, you mentioned that I think in the edition of Visible Learning that comes out next year, I think it's next year, is it? That um, the amount of studies you have at your disposal has just exploded almost. I think you know the num the amount of data you have at your disposal is so much larger now. Is that just time, or is that because education is becoming more of a you know there's more people looking at this stuff? Oh, you're right. It's um, you know, I've doubled the number of meta-analyses, and you know, a few months ago, I, I released a website with all the data on it, so anyone can have the data. They don't have to spend 30 years collecting it like I had to. Yeah. Um, collecting the data is actually the easy part. Um, it's 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 not difficult at all. The hard part's interpreting it. Um, and so, yes, it's it has increased exponentially, and I think it's a very healthy step, as long as we forget that um, the days of evidence are kind of over. Mm. The days of interpreting the evidence is what matters now. And I think that's the art that um, I'm most interested in. What do you mean by that? Do you mean that we've looked at a lot of stuff, but we need better analysis of what we've got rather than doing new studies? Oh, totally. Yeah. It's the same with tests in schools. Like most schools are awash with data, but they're not used, they're not interpreted. Mm. And so we've spent far too much talking about tests and data and we've not talked about interpretation. Well, it's the same with research. Like re research, particularly we have with Mrs. Google and Google Scholar and all the um, the journals now that are, well, we talk about exponential growth, are going like crazy. Mm. That's not the hard part. You've got EFF in England, you've got what works in America, you've got other things in other parts of the world. And yeah, we're very good at curating evidence. We're very good at making evidence. We're very good at pushing it out there. Let's switch and talk about dissemination and utilization. Mm. And that's really what I wanted to do in Invisible Learning. What's a better way of taking this voluminous research we have 
and putting it out in a way that you can actually use it to make a difference. Do you think teachers on the whole want that evidence firstly and second are able to translate that evidence into something practical? I, I think it's both that like as I hear teachers say very often can you imagine going to your doctor and your doctor saying I haven't looked at a piece of research since I left medical school would yeah. be horrible. Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, the teaching profession does look at the research they have been confused by it Our, as academics we sometimes haven't been very good at presenting it Mm. Um, but what I'm trying to do is to synthesize it so that you don't just get wedded to one study and believe the truth lies in one study, but by synthesizing and replicating, you can, you can actually start to make some, some big and bold claims um, that is backed up. But I also make a very strong claim that um, it's like clinical medicine. It's not the evidence, it's the interpretation. And teachers bring an incredible amount of evidence from their experience to the table. I want them to also add the same kind of thinking to their own evidence as they want to bring to the research evidence. And I think that's been the breakthrough. Oh, so you, you think teachers as researchers is a good idea. Teachers trying stuff in their classroom. No, 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 I'm not a fan of teachers or researchers. And in fact, your magazine ran a thing on me a couple of years ago with the headlines with me saying that. And I did say that, but the second part of the sentence was missed. Mm. I said, I'd rather teachers not be researchers. I'd rather be evaluators. Okay, it's yeah. a really important difference in that under evaluation, you're asking about value, merit, and worth. Is this the best resource to use to make a difference to these kids where they are right now? Research often asks the why question, the cause question, the why isn't so, whereas evaluation is more about the so what question. And so I think that's, you know, I have nothing wrong with teachers doing research. Obviously, it's, it's in my genes that to do that. Mm. But I think they'd be much better off if they became evaluators, which is quite a set of skills. Do you think then that there's a movement in the UK now for research leads in schools? So a teacher who's nominated or given extra time to look through the papers and try and translate that for the rest of the school. Is that, is that evaluation? Is that a person who's got the time to evaluate the research and find what's useful for their context? Or is, are you talking about evaluation in a different way? Look, that, that's a, a part of it, but, but to me, that's a small part. Mm. Um, and with today's technologies, uh, someone who's a bit trained in how to use Google Scholar and some of the websites, that's not difficult to find lots of stuff and to find good reviews now. And that's been a, a, a burgeoning business. But I'd rather those people spend more time asking in their own context and evaluating the introduction of programs, looking at where students are having success, where they're not having success. Um, we use effect sizes, we use artifacts of kids' work, and we use student voice. How you triangulate that, and a very sensitive thing to do here, John, is how you do that across teachers, yeah. and how you get teachers to be part of that. Like bringing along a piece of kids' work three months apart and having a debate about whether that's three months' growth amongst teachers. Those are the most profound things that you do, and this is what we do in our visible learning work when we work in schools, um, is to raise these questions, and it requires a lot of trust, a lot of sensitivity and sometimes skills some of our teachers struggle with, like the ability to stand in others' shoes and see what it means from their point of view. Mm. Um, teaching, teachers who have been out of the business 10, 20 years often have learned the only way they can be successful is to do it by themselves. That world is changing. We want those people in the room thinking aloud and showing others about the ways in which they critique, they make decisions and how they evaluate because that's the essence of excellence in our business. And so yes, there is a role for that. I'd be a little worried if 
you're, you're putting people into school to, to dredge through the literature. Mm. I don't think that has much benefit. And it's, it's interesting in one of the gold papers that you sent over, uh, the Fool's Gold one, where you're talking about ranking and everyone, <laughs> when people quote your work, it's, oh, you know, formative assessment or feedback is, 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 this, is this ranking. And then you address that directly and you say, well, this was like an appendix almost <laughs> to, to your research. You don't want it to be viewed as sort of the top, the top 10 teaching strategies type thing. Well, I wrote the book. I wrote five versions. The right. fourth version was the one I was most proud of. It was resplendent, 500 pages full of data, tables, numbers. You can't imagine. And my wife read it and she said, which two people in the world are going to read this? <laughs> so I threw it away. Best thing I ever did, rewrote it again. And she read it again and she said, look, there's, there's no flow. So she invented the diagram, the, um, the barometers that went through to give it a flow. Yeah. And at the last minute, I stuck the... Um, the ball and the end is a ranking. And in many ways, it kind of worked. It got attention. Yeah. On the other hand, it's caused a lot of hassle where people have misunderstood my work and said, we're going to do the things at the top and the things at the bottom don't matter. And just because homework in primary school has a zero, we should abolish it. And that's clearly they have never opened a page of the book. Yeah. The book is all about the overlap and the, the discrimination between the stuff at the top and the bottom. And it took me 20 odd years to work that out. So on the one hand, I regret it. On the other hand, it worked. And that's why I switched the debate to knowing thy impact. I want you in your school, in your class, in your system to know your impact. And here's the ways we can help you understand this and do that. Mm. And do you think then that when people are sending me articles saying, uh, we have changed our, you know, we, we've looked at John Hattie's list and we're doing X and Y, does that make you feel quite uncomfortable then? It does. Yeah. Because that's a, it's, it's like your country in, after the book came out, your country decided for whatever reason, they'd have the year of feedback. Yeah. And you think, well, what happens next year? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, it, it was that notion of it's, it's a tack on. And you know, my fundamental argument and, and the reason we wrote the book on mind frames is how teachers think, is how school leaders think as mm. they do their job. And that's the message I probably didn't get as well across in the, um, the first book but I've made up for it by publishing about another 25 on the same areas to try and get that message across. It's how you think about what you do. It's the nature of the evidence you use. It's the critique you use. And yes, that list provides you with probability statements that if you do these things, there are high probabilities, this will work or low probabilities. But what really matters is how you implement it. Mm. I think that implementation uh, point is an interesting we had a long chat with um, Carol Dweck on the podcast where she spoke of this shock she had that her work was used in certain ways that she never intended and then she suddenly said well, I, I have an obligation now to try and correct because I've had a negative impact on some places because it's been interpreted badly so now I've suddenly got this 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 desire to try and correct that and it sounds like in a way that you had this you put this book out there and it started being used in ways that weren't intended and you spent <laughs> 11 years again trying to say look, 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 no don't I, I i didn't mean it quite like that is that is that fair yeah it's a bit of fairness carol was a very good friend of mine and we've had long discussions about this topic of uh, wouldn't it have been a lot easier if we just sat in the back room and indulged in our own passion but that's not how it works and yeah. and certainly her work like mine is dramatically misinterpreted by many people um and she i know she's doing a lot of work to try and correct that and yeah I, i'm the same that i go back and look at visible learning and i'm pretty happy with it 10 years later 
Um, could I have got the message across better? In retrospect, when I've learned how some people use it or misuse it, yes, I could have, but I've continued to do that. Um, I continue to try and grow in my own thinking about the area. And probably the biggest change for me, John, is um, from spending my academic career within the confines of a university, I now work um, and have a, a large team around the world working in schools. We work with about 100,000 teachers a year around the world. And that's given me another incredible source of evidence about how you go about implementing it. Mm. And kind of a bit like Carol, the thing that I've realized is that implementation is the hardest part of this game. Yeah. And I think um, you've been very honest in the, in the gold papers about some of the criticisms of, of the work. I mean, one of them was the, the common language effect size that you introduced to, oh, yeah. to, make, it, to make it a bit more um, accessible for teachers. And you, to, I think you've un, taken that out of the latest edition. Was that an attempt to, at some sort of translation exercise that in retrospect it was and at the last minute i included the a column of the standard errors instead of the common language effects size. and what is kind of amusing is it took about five years for some students in norway to discover the problem they emailed me i was on a plane at the time so i said let me go back to melbourne have a look and as soon as i got back i emailed them back yes you're right i contacted the publisher uh, we changed the next print editions. But here's the fascination. It took five years for someone to discover. It clearly didn't work. Yeah. No one used it. No one understood it. It just yeah. didn't work. So yes, I've taken it out. I regret that error. Um, some authors have keep publishing and saying, because I made that error, you have to ignore everything else. It was just another way of trying to get it across. And as it turned out, I didn't need it. And I wished I never used it. And yeah, of course, I regret that error. Mm. And you also talked about the criticisms about the data and, people saying you should only use RCTs in your argument as well. If I only used RCTs, I think you used the, the example of the clearinghouse in the US. I'd only have two studies to, 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 to base anything on. And it, it is that balance, isn't it? That, you know, is all, all evidence is not good evidence, but if we look at everything, then at least we can get a bigger picture than say, you know, a single study that might, that might tell us one thing. Yeah, but one of the things, John, which is hard to get across and I need to keep, getting better at this is that the fundamental benefit of a meta-analysis is not just the fact that it's a way of statistically synthesizing many studies and you get an overall effect size, but the, the true beauty of a meta-analysis are the things that affect that overall average, mm. like all the moderators, all the influencers. You know, every teacher in the world fundamentally believes that their class is unique. Well, that's an empirical proposition and it's a possible moderator. And like I and others, have spent decades looking for those key moderators. We struggle to find them, which I think is absolutely fascinating. That doesn't mean to say we shouldn't still keep looking at them, mm. but looking at um, what actually makes an influence. And the, like, take the example of homework. Now, it's one of the very few examples where there's a very clear moderator. The effects of homework in high schools is, is reasonably high, in primary schools, zero. Um, and when you look at other moderators like country, doesn't make a difference. Boys and girls don't make a difference. Whether you are gifted or special needs, doesn't make a difference to the outcomes. And I think that's quite frankly, the most fascination, fascinating thing is that it's very hard to find those moderators, not that we shouldn't still hunt for them. Mm. Well, I interviewed Robert Plowman last year and he made the argument that actually school makes no difference to a, to a, to a child or, or teachers matter, but not as much as they think. I mean, you're not at that extreme end of the proposition but 
a lot of what you say is, yeah, I mean, teachers, by and large, the, the difference in what teachers do doesn't make a huge impact. I mean, that seems to be some of, some of what you argue. Yeah, and, um, my best estimate of the effect size of kids who don't go to school, and I've taken it from countries where kids don't go to school very much, that effect size is about 0.15. And so when you have an average effect size of 0.4, I think it's pretty good evidence that school does make a difference. Mm. Um, and certainly the argument, like the big argument in America at the moment is the case of over-education. Mm. That um, a third of jobs that demand a, a university degree don't use the skills involved in a university degree. Now that's put a lot of um, pressure on politicians to start reducing funding to education. And my argument is you go to a kid from a, a high poverty area, a high needs area, and tell them I don't need schooling. I think you've missed the point. Mm. And do you think then that all in all, when teachers are looking through your work, and I mean, I, I've been working in this magazine six years, and you know, I'm struggling with some of the research terminology because I'm not, I'm not a researcher, and and I think the balance between teachers being research informed and having access to the language and and systems of academia is quite a difficult one because. At some point, you're going to have to simplify or translate. And in that translation exercise, things go missing or, or things get simplified that shouldn't be simplified. I mean, where do we, where do we find the, the common ground there? Well, this is the art that we in academia have to get better at. Um, like I remember you know, the, the classic argument is academics have the answer they just can't communicate it and they blame the teachers for not understanding and blah 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 mm. and i think it's the opposite that we as academics have not understood that every teacher in england has a very strong theory about how they teach and until we stop and understand that we're not going to have an influence and so what i've tried to do in my work is understand what it means to be a teacher reading this work how they understand it i do a lot of um, my publications i get teachers to read it and comment back to me about what they understood and didn't understand and if they don't understand something that's my fault so i think we need to get smarter in academia in um talking to teachers and there are some authors like you have shirley clark in your country mm. she's got the skill of doing this without patronizing and that's the art of this mm. and we just got to get smarter in doing it like most of us in academia are paid by the taxpayer and i think we have an obligation to find ways to speak back to our communities in ways that's not patronizing that is informative and that is useful now, like Carol, like me, you sometimes get a lot of flack for it. You get a lot, success can be measured by the number of arrows in your back. Um, but you've got to take that. And uh, one of the interesting things at the moment in this country is cognitive load theory, which has underpinned yes. some of the uh, policy over here. And there's a debate as to whether it's, it's pointing out that some, something obvious or whether it has no em, empirical research or well, hasn't got robust enough research behind it. And there's some teachers saying, well, actually, it's really worked for me. And that's good enough. If it's changed the way I teach, it's, it's good enough. Do you think that argument stacks up? Do you think that's okay if a teacher feels that it's an impact? Well, it's not okay, John. It's not. It just isn't. If they said, it works for me, and here's the evidence that it works for me, then I'm listening. Okay. But just having an opinion that you like something is what is deprofessionalizes our area. Mm. And like cognitive load theory is one of our best theories obviously invented by an Australian um, and pushed, promoted by John Sweller's work. Um, it, it's been around for many, many years. It's taken a lot of uh, high interest at the moment. But then when you look at um, our, your curriculum and our curriculum here in Australia, 
oh my goodness, um, the, the expectations of what you have to get through in a class. And it's a very sobering exercise, which we do in some of our work in schools, where we ask a teacher to sit with a student through the day and listen to the incredible demands on what kids are asked to do. And when you then look at what the nature of that load is, a lot of that load is actually peripheral stuff. It's mm. like I was saying at the start of this podcast, a lot of what we ask kids to do is just doing and lots of doing. And it requires a lot of cognitive load to use that doing, but it's not how we should be spending our resources and energy. Mm. And certainly in my own work, where we're looking at you know, the whole notion of what are the best strategies to use, it turns out that the best strategies depend on the nature of where you are in the learning cycle. First learning content, or when then you go on to make relationships and do deeper understanding. And having the skill to know when to use it. And so the research out of cognitive load says to me, loud and clearly, that we need to be better at understanding what are the skills, what is the requirement of students in this particular lesson that they need to do and how do we make sure we focus on those and not on the peripheral stuff. And that can be extremely powerful. I think that's a really interesting point in that a lot of this research is being interpreted as this is what we should be doing. Whereas what you're sort of arguing, if I'm, if I'm correct, is to say, what should we be doing when? Like at what yes. point, not just in a lesson, but in a, in a, in a scheme of work across a year, uh, when, certain, when the kids are a bit crazy after coming in from lunch, if you've got an after lunch lesson, you want teachers to ask when more. Is that right? I, I want them to ask when a lot more. And I also want them to understand what are the skills the kids are using? And like one of the things we do in our work now is we ask the kids to think aloud. Mm. And that's really illuminating because sometimes they can't think aloud. They think aloud about the wrong stuff. And then you realize all their mental energy is going into choosing what color pencil they're going to use or what nine times six are when they're supposed to be using it. Yeah. And that's when you realize that the cognitive load is misplaced. And that's where you can get a lot smarter in your own class about how then you can focus and make sure the kids are spending the energy on the right stuff. Mm. And I guess the, the beauty of education, but also the, comp, comp, the complicated factor is that you can never truly know what's going on in a child's head. <laughs> and that, make, that makes those decisions quite difficult. Well, I suppose then you could say, why did I call my book Visible Learning? You're yeah. absolutely right. And that's the whole purpose of the calling was that, to see if we could make the learning more visible, because you're so right. But mm. as a teacher, and I think this is the, 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 the art and beauty of teachers, is the really good teachers do have a sense of how kids are thinking and what processes. And they do have a way of talking with kids to get them to talk aloud, understand their processing. They do have um, a willingness to find out what misconceptions and errors kids have. And they do worry about you know, knowing when the right time to use the right strategies are. And so making that learning more visible is the whole point of um, my work. And do you think that teaching then is, is a, one of the most complex professions in comparison to others in the sense that is there any other profession with such, such a high price tag attached to it in terms of outcomes, but also, you know, these, these tiny moments of the day of, of each lesson that can actually matter? Or do you think that it's comparable. It's just a skill set that a teacher learns and becomes quite natural. And to an outsider, it just looks like a very, very complex beast. Well, I don't have a lot of time for this notion that teaching is complex because um, great teachers see patterns mm. and make sense of that complexity. Um, and it doesn't take away the complexity, but they make sense of it. And so I, I look and uh, spend a lot of time looking at really excellent teachers and, and, and they do have 
a very good worldview of what's happening. They're very good at anticipating. Um, they're, they're very good at understanding when things are working and not working. They're very much focused on seeing what their impact is as opposed by making sure how they teach is appropriate. And I think all those things can be learned. I'm not a fan arguing that teaching is something you're born with. I think it is a learned skill. I think it's a skill that you learn over a period of time. Uh, you get, you can't, we do get better at it and we need to get better at it. Uh, some of the evidence is a bit frightening on that and that um, after two or three years of being in a classroom, the degree to which we get better for too many teachers is too flat and that's not good enough. And I think the biggest change in the last 10 years, certainly in your country and my country, is we're now asking teachers to be more collaborative. We're deprivatizing classrooms. And I think that's a very healthy thing as we now ourselves start to have a language about how we think, how we evaluate and how we do our job. So we're demystifying it even amongst ourselves. And collaboration is one of the big points you make both in, in the book and, and, in, and in the, the gold papers that you've released. And do you think that league tables and accountability is, 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 a, is a blocker there? If we create competition between schools, we're less likely to get that collaboration. Or are you talking more in collaboration within a school so that accountability yeah. metric is different? Well, it's a bit of both. The collaboration within a school, and I certainly want school leaders to have collaboration across schools. Mm. And look, I'm not a great fan of all that accountability stuff. I've struggled to find the evidence that makes much difference. Um, like PISA came out a couple of weeks ago in your country and my country. I, mm. I bet in your country and my country this week it's even stale news. Yeah. Um, those kind of things come out. They can have invidious um, negative effects. But I am a great fan of using the same kind of evidence within a school, and I want to see that that evidence, when it used, has a positive impact on the students' um, performances and their learning lives. And that's a tougher ask. Um, a lot of the current schemes, like in your country and my country, when they have the league tables, is we have 53 reasons why they're wrong and we ignore them. And so they haven't had much impact in a positive way. And I think that's very unfortunate. But yeah, it's, I certainly wanted a classroom and in schools um, to use evidence but that requires an incredible amount of trust. That's the skill of the principal coming to the fore. And I want, like, what, if, if anything, teachers of all professions are the best at critique. It's their, it's, it's their day job. It's what they do all the time. And I mean that in a very positive way. And how do we harness that same critique when they talk amongst themselves? And that's where this collaborative efficacy. And there are kind of three parts to that in terms of the work that I see it and, and the research we're doing is the first part is you've got to have the skills to work in a group. Secondly, you've got to have the confidence that you can contribute to the group. And thirdly, and the hardest one of the lot, and oh my gosh, it's hard for me too at times, you've got to have a confidence that the group is better than an individual. Yeah. I'm sure, John, you're the same as me. You go into a group and you say, oh my gosh, I could have done it quicker myself. Yeah. Well, that's not very constructive. And so doing this collective efficacy is not easy. But when it happens, it's, the effects are dramatic, absolutely dramatic. And it's really exciting. Is that, is that what your main focus in now is going forward is trying to get more data and use those hundreds of thousands of teachers you've got in your, in your program to, to find better ways of facilitating that sort of collaboration? Absolutely. And um, I'm working with um, three others at the moment, Shirley Clark in your country and um, two uh, authors in, in, the, in the US. And we're writing a book on 
not just teacher collective efficacy, but on student collective efficacy. How do you teach kids to work in groups mm. and have that confidence that the group can go? And, and I'm sure it's true, particularly in high school in your country, most assessments, most assignments are done by individuals, but not done in groups. Yeah. The best math student doesn't explain math to the English student and vice versa. Um, we put kids in these silos dramatically. And that's changing in the teaching profession. It needs to change in the classroom too. There's quite a lot of... Um antipathy towards group work among a lot of teachers and they say it's a waste of time and they didn't enjoy it how much is that their experience as a teacher but also how much is that their experience as a student and exactly what you just said you go into a group and you think god i could have done this quicker and that sort of anecdotal evidence becomes very powerful well i think the the biggest difference between kids in the last 10 20 years and and, and people before that is that the employment sector now is demanding collaborators, team players, and translators. Mm. Um, if you don't have sufficient law or maths or site carpentry, um, but you have some, we can, we can improve that. But if you don't have the ability to be a team player, it's very hard to employ it, to do that. And so I, I can show you the graphs of employment rates and um, relative over the last 30 years to this trend, to wanting this, these sets of skills. And so that's why I'm saying in the classroom, we have to mimic that. We have to find ways around that. And I'm with those teachers. Setting up group work's tough. Mm. And it comes back to this when. I would argue there's a right time to do group work and there's a wrong time. There's a, there's a right way to set up group work and there's a wrong way to set up group work. There's a right way to, to come, give feedback about group work. There's a wrong way. And more, more importantly, there are skills you have to teach kids to be involved in groups. And often we just put them in groups and hope. Like Rob Coe in your country came out a few years ago. 92% of kids in England uh, sit together in classes, in groups, and work alone. Yeah. Uh, well, that's, that's not good enough. And we're not doing our kids any favour if we don't teach them the skills of how to work in a group. Do you think we need to, to slim down the, the amount of content we're going to teach then to make room for this sort of stuff? Or do you think it's not as hard as we think and it's just it's, we can still teach the amount of content that is required of the curriculum but we just have, you do it in different ways oh look that's one of my bugbears like as i travel around the world you can imagine each country has curricula australia with our curricula is three thousand pages long yeah. uh, in new zealand the curricula for the every subject for every age group is 39 pages long and i have this argument that um i'll go on a curriculum commission if you allow the group to take half of it out and for a while, I was on the Welsh curriculum because the minister at the time said yes. And I put to him, it's not just a matter of taking it out. It's taking it out so you can go deeper. Yeah. Um, and, and like, I'll ask you, John, what did you learn when you were 10 years old in social studies or in math? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> but I bet the teachers of every 10-year-old in your country will say the curriculum is imperative. Yeah. I think we overplay the curriculum far too much. I'm nothing against curriculum, but I want depth in fewer subjects. Mm. And I think that um, as a profession, there are lots of ways we can do that collectively. Um, I think the subject associations should be the most powerful associations in your country that should have a say in these kind of things. And I would be hoping schools make decisions about which subjects they're going to have and which ones they're going to deep at. We don't have to cover the lot. And what a way to turn many kids off by doing a little bit about everything. Mm. I mean, you're in quite a unique position because you do so much international travel would you how different do you think systems are in reality i mean would they appear to be very different because they value different things but when you get into a classroom with 30 kids how is, is it that different an experience in these different countries 
Well, starting first with the curriculum notion, when they were building Common Core in America, they took every curriculum and learning progression, maths and reading from every district, and they put them on a scale of alignment from zero, there was no alignment to 100, there was perfect alignment. The average alignment was 10. Okay. Um, so I give up on that. It's, curricular yeah. is curricular. Yes, it varies dramatically, but at the end of the day, it's not as critical um, if you, all you care about is the content you cover. I think there's a lot more interesting things about curriculum than that. Secondly, in the nature of the teaching, um, no, I think there is a difference in countries. Uh, there's a history. Like, it's like um, my argument here in Australia, like, besides my academic job in Australia, I have a political job. Um, I'm a cabinet-appointed chair of a, an organisation here called AXEL, so I get to meet ministers, and every minister I meet, I say, minister, it should be a, a point of, a badge of honour that during the term of your uh, government, you should not go to Finland, Singapore, or Shanghai. <laughs> <laughs> because they go and they pick out with the same lens that they have as an Australian, the bits they like, and they bring it back. Yeah. I say to the minister, I will give you schools in your own electorate that are brilliant. Go there. Because there is a history. And so looking across the border isn't a very uh, fruitful way to proceed. Mm. When it comes down to it, you say when you close the door, unfortunately, yes, that is the case. Um, if Rip Van Winkle came back from 100 years ago, I'm sure he could walk into a classroom and teach without a blink. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of interesting in one way that it stood the test of time. On the other hand, I think that what we demand of our teachers now compared to 100 years ago is dramatically different. We, every hiccup in society, we ask teachers to fulfill it and fix it. And fascinatingly, they do. And they do a pretty good job. And so, yes, in many cases, classrooms are similar. But then if you look at people like Robin Alexander and the work he's done across the world, there are some really critical differences um, in Eastern countries and some of the other countries. And I think it's a fascinating topic. But when it comes down to it, your country in England, you have a system. Um, it's kind of working. Um, same with my political hat on. I would estimate in England 60% plus of teachers and schools uh, their kids are making more than a year's growth for a year's input, and I think it's pretty impressive. Mm. And the job of policy is to identify the excellence you have and upscale it. Mm. Sadly, policy is always the opposite. You find failure to justify what you're going to do. And no wonder teachers get sick and tired of the policy fads that come in and out. But if you turn it around, and that's what we ask of schools. Every school we work in, have you got the courage to recognize excellence? And it may not be necessarily with your most experienced teachers. It may be with your five-year-old teacher out. It may be with your most experienced. Are you prepared to do that? And the biggest problem I have, not enough courage. Yeah. And the, my final question then to you is how is visible learning a life work for you? Is this something you're going to have to constantly update until you retire or beyond retirement? Is, this, is, it, is it a life, a life journey for you or is this something that you, at some point you're going you're gonna to leave? Well, I better get busy because I retire in six months from my university oh, really? job. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it was not my life work. As I, say, I, I was very happy in the measurement world until 10 years ago. Yeah. I'm, I'm obviously honoured and pleased that people have interest in this stuff. Um, right at the moment, I'm spending a lot of my research work on the learning strategies and the other area that's growing like Topsy for me is um, visible learning in elite sport. Okay. Uh, we do a lot of work with um, elite coaches around the world now, and that's obviously interesting. Um, look, I, I, when I get run over by the bus, I will be delighted that the visible learning message is out there and others can pick it up and take it. Um, and that, to me, I'll be very happy with. Um, I hope I've made that contribution. 
I hope some others pick it up, critique it, improve it. And my challenge to everyone out there, particularly academics, is I've published this work now 10 years, some of it longer. Uh, in that time, of course, people have critiqued the work, but no one, no one has taken all the data and come up with alternative explanation. Hmm. That's the challenge. I'm sure someone will do this one day and I want to be the first to congratulate them. I hope someone does, because that's how our business grows. Thank you very much, John. Thank you, John. Audi de vos rêves se trouve déjà près de chez vous. Choisissez le modèle qui vous fait rêver et profitez-en immédiatement. Audi s'engage aujourd'hui à vos côtés avec Audi pour vous. Un ensemble d'offres et de services pour vous aider à mieux repartir. En ce moment, jusqu'à 6 mois de loyer vous sont offerts sur une sélection de modèles disponibles en stock. Découvrez l'ensemble de nos engagements Audi pour vous sur Audi.fr. Offre jusqu'à 6 mois de loyer suivant le premier versement offert. Offre LLD à particulier jusqu'au 30 juin 2020 sur 37 mois et 25 000 km par an maximum sur une sélection de véhicules en stock et si acceptation par Volkswagen Bank. Détails sur Audi.fr.